This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department has several small innovation storefronts like the Defense Innovation Unit, Softworks, and AFWorks. They partner with non-traditional vendors to find solutions to some of DOD's toughest challenges. For years, DOD has focused on building the infrastructure to find these innovations, but now it's turning its focus to the next step in the process, the so-called Valley of Death. Federal News Network's Daisy Thornton joins me now with details. And Daisy, let's start with this Valley of Death. This has been a persistent problem in commercializing some of these endeavors. Tell us more about the Valley of Death and what the challenge is. Right. So it's the transition process between prototyping and full-scale production. And DOD loses a lot of non-traditional contractors every year due to the difficulty of making this transition. And the agency is in the early days of figuring out exactly why. Here's Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks talking about those efforts. There are many places you can fall off the cliff in transition for the Defense Department. So we are mapping that system, which um, to my knowledge has never been done, which surprises me. So I keep waiting for someone to tell me it has. Mm -hmm. But right now we have R&E, CDAO, and our acquisition and sustainment folks sitting down and just building out what is that map and what are the friction and pain points on that map to your question about where are we falling down in the transitions. And the answer right now, early on, is dozens. There are dozens of pain point spots where we are losing innovation through our system. That was Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. So, like she said, there are a number of pain points. One of the big ones is the budget timeline. In order to be considered for funding, these vendors have to be ready to go by February. But Congress doesn't pass a budget until October. That's a long time for small businesses and startups to sit in limbo. And that assumes we get a budget on time at all. Continuing resolutions are disastrous for this process. All right. And what is DOD proposing for solutions to this problem? So there are a few things DOD is trying to do to at least ease the transition process for vendors. Hicks set up the Innovation Steering Group last fall to spearhead those efforts. So one thing that group has done is map the ecosystem of all those innovation storefronts within DOD. DIU, Softworks, AFWorks, etc. And built a unified front door for them. And the idea is to get a unified view of who and what exactly are in the pipeline. Currently, innovation is happening in siloed pockets across the department without much coordination. That can lead to duplication. Hicks said artificial intelligence is a prime example of what that can look like. Innovation is happening across the department, but there's no clear path to scale. But the new chief digital and artificial intelligence office is now providing that unified view. So it's a very similar approach. And Hicks also said they're taking lessons learned from DIU. DOD's original storefront, innovation storefront, and learning how to scale those investments. For example, DIU has pointed out that many of the operational technologies DOD is looking for are dual-use commercial technologies. So Hicks wants to improve DOD's R&D funding process. Because while the innovation is largely happening outside of DOD, federal funding is instrumental in fueling it. So DOD needs to get its finger on the pulse of that ecosystem and get a better idea of what's going on there. Here's Hicks talking about those efforts. That's where I think we have a lot of potential. More, We have the potential to increase partnerships, make sure we have our workforce has the flexibility to go out into the commercial sector, to spend fellowship time. We can bring more people like Craig Martell into the government, places like digital services, what used to be DDS, mm-hmm. places like that where we routinely bring folks in. And of course, the flagship of that actually is DARPA, where we mm-hmm. have long had the ability to attract the best and the brightest into into the department. We need to continue doing all of that. And then Mm -hmm. we need to be able to work with Congress to make sure that we have the room and flexibility to 
actually bring that technology to bear inside the department. And that's on the resourcing side more than it is, if you will, on the acquisition side. That was Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's Daisy Thornton. And I noticed she mentioned DARPA, of course, in that recitation. They've historically been kind of central to defense innovation research. What is DARPA doing specifically to help this valley of death problem? So DARPA has been focused recently on one specific pathway through that valley of death, and that's commercialization. DARPA's director, Stephanie Tompkins, said sometimes there's a gap between the scientists that invent something and what people are willing to pay for it. And that can make initial funding for startups hard to come by. Here's Tompkins talking about that challenge. U.S. investors in those kinds of startups have very high standards. They want to see an honest, viable, believable business case. One of our concerns has been that some of our adversaries, um, who also are investing a lot of money in technology, are more willing to put money in early. And so you have a scenario where you might have startup companies using DARPA or DOD-funded technologies where they can get money from, say, China quickly in order to advance their company. And then that obviously complicates all sorts of things like who owns the intellectual property and whether or not the U.S. US can then buy any of that technology in the future. That was DARPA director Stephanie Tompkins. So to help solve that problem, DARPA came up with its Embedded Entrepreneurship Initiative. That helps companies build their business cases with an eye toward making it easier to fund secure funding from U.S. investors. That initiative began with the pilot of 30 companies. Now it's about to scale up to 150. Tompkins said DARPA is really focused on the entire ecosystem of defense innovation. She said DARPA is constantly looking for breakthroughs to capitalize on. And the healthier the ecosystem, the more of those there will be. So that's one specific effort to help bridge that valley of death. We'll see what other solutions come out of the Innovation Steering Group once they've finished mapping that transition process. So in some ways, there is a expanded role for DARPA, which used to focus pretty much on the research end of things. But now, as you point out, they are looking at the commercialization, I guess, with the idea that if these innovations can be commercialized, even in other markets beyond DOD, that's okay with the Defense Department. Exactly. And it can help those startups create the kind of funding that they need to survive through that valley of death until the federal budget comes through. Right. And so the question then becomes, I guess, and does this come up in some of your discussions, the initial innovations are often paid for with other transaction authority money. But when they're commercial and in volume, then the agencies have to come up with regular old acquisition under the DFAR money. And that can be sort of a challenge, too, I think, at times. So OTAs didn't specifically come up with either of them, but I'm fairly certain that that's something the Innovation Steering Group is going to be looking at. All right. Federal News Network's Daisy Thornton, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of 
the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at Grifflesplasma.com. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you taken care of.